Welcome to FYI, the four-year innovation podcast. This show offers an intellectual discussion on technologically enabled disruption, because investing in innovation starts with understanding it. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Invest is a registered investment advisor focused on investing in disruptive innovation. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARK or podcast guests and are not endorsements or recommendations by ARK to buy, sell, or hold any security. Clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to FYI, the For Your Innovation podcast. I'm Michael Cromer, a marketing associate here at ARK. Today's episode will act as the audio version of our monthly video series, In the Know, with our CEO, CIO, and founder, Kathy Wood. Today, she will weigh in on M2 growth, inventory pileups, liability-driven investing, commodity prices, and why we believe the Fed is making a mistake as they base policy on lagging economic indicators. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks. Hello, everyone. My name is Kathy Wood. Uh, I'm founder and chief investment officer of ARK Invest, um, and I do these in-the-know videos each month. Um, especially when we feel that um, that either the media or maybe the Fed in this case is misinterpreting what is going on out there and just try to lend a little perspective, at least from one point of view, our point of view. Um, and as we usually do, we'll start with uh, policy, so fiscal policy, monetary policy. I'll weave in economics with economic policy because... I mean, I'm sorry, I'll weave in uh, economics with Fed policy because um, the Fed is supposedly data-driven. And uh, there's a lot of data out there that suggests that the Fed policymakers should not be unanimous in their vote to tighten policy. Uh, Unanimity seems to be the order of the day. I don't know if it's uh, from on high, Chairman Powell, or if it's really there. Uh, But uh, we have some data points that uh, we think the Fed would find interesting and and perhaps even provocative. Uh, Then we will go into market indicators uh, quickly and talk a little bit about innovation and uh, how it is valued as a factor in the market. So starting with fiscal policy, uh, we're, uh, we're looking at the midterm elections right now. So basically, nothing new is happening on fiscal policy, which is just as well. Uh, in the midterms, we probably, as we usually do, uh, in the midterms, have a changeover uh, or a loss of seats uh, uh, for the incumbent party in the House, uh, and that will probably turn the House uh, this time. And so I think that the policies looking forward will be focused on um, getting spending, taxes, regulation down, and maybe opening up the spigots a bit more in terms of energy production here in this country instead of going to Venezuela or Saudi Arabia. Monetary policy, well, uh, let's just look at the numbers first. 
Uh, M2 growth peaked uh, at 27% in 2020 and has been slowing ever since. It hit 4.1% in August. Uh, we believe it is closing in or might be below 3% on a year-over-year basis in September, uh, which doesn't leave a lot of room for growth or inflation unless velocity is really picking up, the, the rate at which money turns over. And we're in an environment where we do not believe velocity is picking up. If anything, um, I think individuals and businesses are becoming more concerned and uh, are spending less freely. Uh, so if you look at M2 also, you'll see that it actually peaked in March. Now, this is very unusual to see sequential declines in money. Um, so it, we have not gotten back above that March peak, and uh, we may not get uh, back above it the way the way, uh, that Fed policy is going. Um, and I think uh, I'd like to build the case a little more here that the Fed is probably making a mistake. Um, we, I say prob probably because I have to <laughs> from a compliance point of view, but I really do believe the Fed is making a mistake. Uh, and uh, reflecting a little bit more on the Jackson Hole speech that, uh, that Chairman Powell gave in late August, um, we've, uh, we've come to recognize that uh, Chairman Powell really does think he is the reincarnation of Chairman Volcker, that we need him to take a sledgehammer to inflation, much like Volcker did. And, and history has treated Chairman Volcker very kindly. He did turn the tide on inflation. Now, what he did, though, was he turned a tide that had been building for 15 years. It started in 1964 with the Vietnam War and with the Great Society. So many social programs started at that time under President Johnson. And for 15 years, fiscal and monetary policy pretty much went rogue. Uh, as we look at history, uh, even after shocks to the system, uh, like the oil embargo uh, the, and the stimulus that came about because of it, both monetary and fiscal policy, we never saw the kind of slowdown in monetary and fiscal policy that we're seeing right now. Uh, federal spending is still down 14% on a year-over-year -year basis. You never saw a decline in fiscal policy spending in the in the 70s. Uh, monetary policy seemed to be on automatic pilot back then. Uh, the dollar was getting crushed toward the end uh, of the 70s, adding to the inflationary, um, inflationary fire. And uh, so Chairman Volcker did choke off money supply uh, and, and killed inflation. It took a long time for uh, people to believe that inflation had peaked. In fact, I don't think um, many people believe it peaked as it did in 1981 until 1986 when oil prices crashed. Uh, so the inflation expectations and uh, uh, the inflation expectations were embedded in the system and it was uh, very difficult uh, and, and Volcker did a masterful job. So that was over a 15-year period that inflation had built. 
Um, by the time the Fed got around to tackling it this time, it was not a 15-year problem. It was a 15-month problem. And from our point of view, it was caused primarily by shocks, major shocks to the system uh, that we had never seen before. We had not had, uh, since Spanish influenza, a global pandemic. And uh, we, had, we did not have the supply chain problems, two years worth of them, uh, that we had because of the COVID panic. And then, of course, we had another shock to top those off, and that was Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So these are shocks to the system. Uh, this was not a period of embedding inflation expectations. And yet, Chairman Powell is taking a sledgehammer that is actually bigger, uh, much bigger. Uh, it's at least six times bigger right now and, and could be eight to ten times bigger uh, if the Fed does raise uh, the Fed funds rate another, another 75 basis points on November 2nd. And what do I mean by that? Well, Chairman Volcker uh, was dealing with double-digit interest rates. Uh, he took interest rates from 10% to 20%. Now, by the time he did that, uh, consumers and businesses had gotten used to maneuvering around inflation. Uh, so while that sounds shocking, going from 10 to 20%, and it did have some shock value, uh, it uh, it wasn't the same as what we're experiencing today with Chairman Powell and the Fed. Um, today, we've gone from 0.25% on the Fed funds rate to 3.25, which is 13, uh, a 13-fold increase, not a two-fold increase. Now, Many people, I was interviewed by someone the other day and said, oh, yeah, but that was such a low base. There, there's no comparison. In fact, that makes this even more dramatic. That's what's so interesting. People dismiss this way of thinking about it, saying, oh, yeah, but the, the base was so low. The base was so low, and it had been really since 2008 and nine because we were in a, a terrible crisis then. And uh, it took a long time to get out of it. And so we did not have inflation expectations built into the system. Uh, I, I really don't believe at all. And, uh, and yet Chairman Powell is behaving, that what's, uh, behaving as though what's going on today with inflation is much worse than what uh, Volcker inherited uh, starting from a low base is really shocking the system, especially given how long interest rates have been low. So I, I, I question the premise of those who say, oh, this is so different. It's such a low base. That's the whole point. It's a low base 13 times. So if they raise uh, the Fed funds rate another 75 basis points, uh, this will be a 16-fold increase compared to Volcker's two-fold increase. Um, now, we have been expecting uh, serious ramifications, financial and other ramifications, because of this monetary policy. Um, and we've, we've gotten the first one, um, but most people here in the United States are not aware of it or haven't thought very carefully about it because it doesn't seem to matter uh, to us. Uh, but I was in the UK around the time 
that uh, it had its near Lehman moment. Uh, near Lehman moment means the financial system implosion. <laughs> Uh, and that was just about 10 days ago. Uh, now, what do we mean by that? Well, uh, there is something called LDI, Liability Driven Investing. And it's where pension funds match uh, their liabilities with assets. Uh, so they will, um, in its pure form, they will match one for one. Uh, the amount that they uh, have to pay out to pensioners as they retire. Uh, now, it would be great if they did match uh, assets with liabilities completely from a safety uh, uh, to the system point of view, uh, but they don't. And with banks, they got and a very low interest rate environment, they got used to uh, using derivatives and taking shortcuts uh, to try and accomplish the same goal. And after a very long period of very low interest rates, uh, I heard someone say the other day, and we were talking about this LDI uh, crisis in, in the UK, uh, that the reason it's so serious is uh, pension fund sponsors were, were uh, beginning to think, and banks were beginning to think, that interest rates would stay very low for a very long time, for as far as the eye could see. And that assumption was built into the kind of derivative activity uh, they were doing. No one expected a sharp increase in interest rates. Well, once that happened, pensions began getting margin calls and they couldn't meet them. Uh, and in fact, if interest rates had gone to 8%, and I think they got to 6% over there, um, if they got to 8%, then uh, according to some of uh, the people close to that situation whom we have consulted, then the pension system would have collapsed. Uh, but it, it wouldn't have really have been the pension system. Uh, what really would have collapsed if the pension funds were not meeting those margin calls were the banks, the counterparties in this case for these derivatives. And so the Bank of England had to step in and basically say pretty much the same thing that Draghi uh, said, uh, the chairman of, um, uh, of the European Central Bank in 2011. Uh, he basically said, we're going to pull out all stops no matter what. So while the Fed, I mean, while the BOE had uh, been uh, almost forced because of currency depreciation into following our Fed with higher interest rates, um, uh, this was uh, this was going to cause a great deal of harm to uh, its system, and so it had to reverse its policy. Uh, so this is um, uh, another reversal in policy, or it's a a bit of a shift in policy. Um, it's an outright easing, and they said they will continue until October 15th. So now uh, all of these uh, pension funds, um, in, in collaboration with the banks, are, are, are deleveraging, and they have till October 14th. So what do you do is, if you're deleveraging in an illiquid environment? All, all markets are, are experiencing duress uh, today. I think the Fed is a big part of that. So what do you do? You sell the most liquid assets. What are those? Those are government bonds. 
Uh, and so um, we're seeing U.S. government bonds, which are held in uh, pension funds abroad, uh, being sold, even though deflationary pressures are mounting all over the place. Uh, and so we think this is a, a, a bit of a financial crisis, and we think we'll see it elsewhere uh, as the Fed continues to raise interest rates, as it seems uh, want to do. Certainly this week was full of speeches from all the Fed members uh, reminding everyone that they're going to take interest rates up until we get to 2% inflation. Well, um, so we'll see what happens on October 14th. By that time, I think uh, they will have been uh, deleveraged and uh, will be past the maximum pressure associated with this guilt trip, which is why we called this in the new, uh, uh, series uh, guilt trip. We're seeing other changes. Um, we've seen China intervene to uh, limit the weakening of it of the yuan. Uh, we've seen Japan doing the same. Now, what is that? What are they doing when they do that? Well, when Japan is trying to support its currency at 145 um, yen to the dollar, uh, what it does is it sells dollars and buys back yen. Now, that that's good in a way. It's doing some of what the Fed should be doing here, actually. It's providing dollar liquidity uh, to the rest of the world. China is doing the same thing. And, uh, and so we'll see uh, what happens from here. I think this is getting to be so serious that we are reaching a cathartic moment. And I do think it started uh, with the guilt trip. Uh, and uh, the Fed has acknowledged that there are international ramifications to what it is doing, but it is thinking first and foremost about the U.S., uh, this reminds me a lot of the early 80s and uh, what happened in the early 80s. Uh, there were two accords, the, the uh, Louvre Accord and the Plaza Accord, where the, the Treasury uh, ministers around the world all agreed uh, to sell dollars to limit the deflationary impact on the rest of the world. And when I say deflationary impact, there are countries, sure, their, their currencies are falling apart, so their inflation rate looks... Uh, they look like they're, they're in hyperinflation or heading in that direction. Uh, but they are being strangled by dollar-denominated debt that they cannot, they cannot service. And uh, so this ends up being quite a deflationary situation longer term. Uh, and so we're wondering what in the U.S. is the weak link. Is it our pensions? Um, we don't know. We, we know there are LDI strategies in the United States. They're not as leveraged as we understand, um, but one never knows. Uh, well, if not that, what are some of the weak links that we're seeing? We've been worrying about auto credit for a while now, and now we have more reason to. Uh, yesterday, we got the Mannheim used car uh, index. It's a, a value index, pricing effectively. And it dropped another 3% plus. It was 4% plus decline last uh, month. And so what we have now is um, it, it has that the year-over-year -year increase has gone from 54% in April of 21 
to minus 0.1. So there you go, Fed. There's some indication that there's uh, there's another indication that uh, deflation is in the system. That index peaked in uh, January and is now down 14% just since January. Uh, so uh, it's it's declining at more than a 20% rate. Now, why is this important? Well, a lot of auto paper out there makes assumptions, or the investors make assumptions about the residual values of cars. And those residual values have been going up, maybe not as much as the used car index, but they have been firm. If we're right, the used car uh, price index is going to collapse here. Why? Well, many people bought cars during COVID because they wanted to avoid mass transit. In Under normal conditions, they didn't need that car. Uh, nonetheless, they were quite happy to see used car prices going up with the thought that when the coast is clear, they would sell back into the, um, into the market, into the used car market. And as I mentioned, uh, used car prices were up 54% on a year-over-year basis at one point. Now they're flat to down. And now dealers who were paying too much for used cars are sitting on losses, and they are going to have to disgorge those inventories uh, because inventories cost money to carry, uh, especially as interest rates are going up. So they're going to be forced to sell. And we believe that's already happening. Uh, and there's about a trillion dollars of auto paper. Now, this won't be a systemic risk, um, but because auto paper was the best performing paper during 0809, this is going to be quite a surprise to um, a number of investors. What's another weak link in the United States? Uh, well, corporations have a lot of debt. Why do they have a lot of debt? Well, they've been catering to short-term shareholders who um, want them to buy back shares and don't mind uh, that they're leveraging up to do so, or they want them to pay dividends and don't mind that they're leveraging up because becoming more indebted. Well, this is becoming a big problem for certain sectors of the economy that are in the throes of disruption, both cyclical and secular. And I think the retail sector is one of those. We remain astonished at the inventory buildup taking place out there. Um, and, and the way we're looking at this now from a deflationary point of view, and you know we think that's the bigger risk now out there, is the pipeline is full of deflationary indicators, starting from commodities, and we'll get into that in a moment. <clears throat> but at the end of the pipeline, downstream at the consumer level, uh, in, uh, retailers are awash in inventories. Um, and and the latest one, pretty provocative, um, is Nike. Uh, and, and Nike is both a retailer, but it mostly sells to retail. Nike's inventories, well, first of all, its global sales were up 3% uh, in this last quarter. Its inventories increased 44%. And that's an August quarter. There were already telltale signs that the consumer was weakening. Its North American inventories were up 68%. And the inventories in transit, mostly from Asia, were up, so they're on ships, were up 85%. 
so you know what's going to happen in order to clear the shelves. Um, Nike is going to have to cut prices and retailers will as well. And we believe this is just a microcosm of a much broader problem out there. And we think we'll see it in full force uh, this holiday season. So you should get some, you should look for and demand bargain basement pricing uh, this, this, um, this holiday season. Now, um, November 2nd, they're going to increase they're saying pretty unanimously, 75 basis points. And uh, so we took a look uh, at the data for the last month because the Fed is saying that it's data-driven. So if it's data-driven, let's do that. And so we looked at all of the indicators for this last month, just the last month, and we found 22 firm or strong indicators suggesting employment and inflation uh, might linger at a higher than expected rate. And we found 22 weak indicators. Now, pulling out the ones that are specific to employment and inflation, since those are the two variables that the Fed is, um, is weighing more than any other. Uh, and we find that uh, on the firm side, what they didn't like was core CPI and PCE at 0.6% month to month, even though the headline indicators were flat to down, uh, the PPI core 0.4, and non-farm payroll, which came out today pretty much in line, 263,000, but there was a drop in the unemployment rate from 3.7% to 3.5%. Now, the reason for the drop was uh, uh, the labor force, not employment, the labor force shrinking. Labor force participation ticked down. Um, so uh, I, I don't take that reason um, as, as seriously because we do believe labor force partici participation will on balance continue to trend up, especially if we're in as weak economy as weak an economy as we believe. So on the on the the weak side, again, if if the Fed were data driven, uh, it would be a paying attention to employment in uh, the ISM index for September. Uh, below 50% means it's contracting. Uh, the job opening, so jolts, they dropped a million in one month. Uh, now, still strong at 10, 10 million. They dropped 1.1 million. That's a big drop in just one month. Um, so job openings are, are declining. We're also seeing surveys out there, I think, um, of in the U.S., among major employers, 300 have announced layoffs. And that's reflected in something called the Challenger Layoff Survey. And uh, those layoffs, which are broad-based company layoffs, are up 68% year over year. Um, I would also imagine that they would consider leading indicators, which in every recession and recovery, in my experience, the Fed has paid uh, a, a, a lot of mind to, um, it dropped 0.3% in the month, last month, 
And uh, that makes for five consecutive months of decline. And the rule of thumb there is once you've got three, you know you're in a recession. So the Fed may be saying that it's data dependent, uh, but it's looking at the data it wants to, to look at. It's not looking at the totality here. Um, it's also making an assumption that we think is mistaken. It's very much uh, a Phillips curve Fed. Now, that's a very Keynesian, Keynes uh, economic theory uh, concept. And it basically says that rising output and employment causes inflation, uh, or they're at the very least highly correlated. And um, that's just not true. If you look at the data, 80s, 90s, 2000s, you'll see that inflation came down uh, during times when the economy was very strong. Why? It's because of productivity. Uh, productivity growth is, um, is a, a, a byproduct, a, a critical byproduct, and an anti-inflationary byproduct uh, of good, strong recoveries. So, um, uh, you know, we, we shall see. All right, on to, uh, and I'm going to refer to some numbers here that uh, my colleagues prepared. Uh, so let's go to the um, uh, commodity prices. Again, data-driven Fed, uh, are you listening? So we'll start with, uh, from their peaks, uh, we've got uh, uh, gold price, the gold price down 17%, copper down 30 Lumber down 73%. Think about that. Housing is collapsing. Uh, iron ore down 45%. Infrastructure around the world has run into trouble, especially China. Corn down 17%. Silver down 29%. Uh, DRAM prices, which are uh, chips, uh, semiconductors, down 46%. The Baltic Freight Index down 48%. That's an indicator of supply chain uh, issues. Um, the, the, Baltic, uh, the, the Baltic Freight Dry Index, which is just for dry goods, down 65%. Oil down 29%. And many people have been dismissing these and saying, yeah, but that's, uh, you know, they went to sky high prices. You know, they're still not down on a year over year basis. That's not true anymore. Gold is down 3%. Copper is down 17%. This is as of today. Uh, lumber is down 28% on a year-over-year -year basis. Uh, corn is an exception. Uh, it is up 27%. Again, Ukraine being a big problem there. Uh, we have silver down 9%. DRAM prices down 33 uh, the Baltic dry freight index down 65 and oil, oil, oh yes, oil and corn. Oil is up 14%. Uh, percent. That's as of today. It's had a big pop recently. But we do think uh, having come down from $130 to $90, it is in a, a downtrend, mostly because of demand destruction. There's another kind of esoteric price out there. I remember it from my days uh, diving deeply into economics, um, and it's uh, container board prices. Um, this gives you a sense of, um, you know, how tight uh, the, the box market is because of a huge amount of trade taking place. 
so uh, they are down uh, 29% from their peak and about 53% from a year ago. Uh, so just taking the evidence um, and putting it together like this, there is a lot of data to be driving the Fed, which is what they say is happening, but we don't think it's happening. I just rattled off uh, lots of um, lots of examples. So let's go to the markets and then wrap up uh, pretty quickly here. Uh, not much to say. No, markets are selling off across the board, uh, and that's very unusual. It's uh, associated with crises. Uh, and uh, more convincing evidence to us that the Fed is too tight and that it will pivot. And when it does, it will do so, we think, significantly. Now, first, it might simply be rhetoric because they always like to tee us up for what the next moves are going to be. Um, and we haven't heard that rhetoric yet, despite all the evidence I just shared with you. Um, but that evidence I just shared with you tells us that the Fed is going to get the message loudly and clearly somehow. And it may not be showing through in the numbers they want to see, uh, but it will. It will. They are huge lagging indicators. They're basing policy on lagging indicators, uh, not what they're supposed to be doing. Anyway, if you take in the U.S. alone, if you take equities and bonds and look at what's happened since the peak, you will see that the, the loss to investors is more than twice what we saw in 08, 09. That's how bad this is uh, because, uh, because bonds are selling off with stocks this time. Uh, so it's a, it's, and, and one of the reasons for that is um, a seizing up of liquidity. As I mentioned, if, uh, if people are facing margin calls or in financial difficulty, they're going to sell uh, their most liquid asset. They will have no choice, uh, especially with margin calls. Most liquid assets tend to be government bonds. And I think that's why we're seeing the backup in government bonds here, despite all of the deflationary signals in the pipeline. Interestingly, um, one price indicator associated with innovation is holding up, beginning to hold up, better than other prices, and that's Bitcoin. Uh, it's been interesting to see it flatline in the last month, uh, while others, uh, other indicators are reaching for new lows. Uh, now, this is not surprising in the late stages of a bear market. In our experience, innovation starts to outperform in the late stages of a bear market. Why does that happen? It happens because innovation is the new leadership. Innovation solves problems. Innovation solves the kinds of problems we have today, supply chain, uh, food, energy shortages, think the genomic revolution, electric vehicles, and so forth. Um, and so we believe that um, uh, innovation should outperform if we're toward the end of this uh, bear market. If the Fed's close to pivoting, even in its rhetoric, I think we are. Um, and uh, we are going to feature uh, on a, a podcast or a webinar in the next few weeks, um, Steve Vanelli, who is the CEO of Knowledge Leaders Capital. 
Uh, and Steve uh, has done factor analysis, uses factor analysis. He's somewhat quantitative in uh, his orientation and has defined innovation as a factor. And according to his quintile spread for the R&D to sales ratio factor, um, he believes that the major underperformance is done. And if you look at the PE to growth ratio of the innovation index that he has derived, it is now selling at a 31% discount to the PE to growth or the PEG ratio of the S&P 500. And uh, he noted that uh, the this innovation uh, kind of strategy bottomed in May, whereas uh, the broader-based indices, which we would submit are being disrupted, um, they hit new lows uh, just in the last 10 days. So uh, stay tuned for more um, discussions uh, about innovation and where, where the world is going and how, how innovation is solving problems. So with that, um, I guess I'd, I'd like to reassure you that uh, it feels like we're moving towards a cathartic moment. And, you know, I think that the 75 basis point uh, increase, if that's what the Fed is going to do, is going to result in some financial signals that the Fed um, will have to pay attention to. Maybe it didn't have to pay attention to the guilt trip, uh, but uh, it should because it is the reason it should have the guilt trip because it is the reason that um, that uh, near Lehman event happened in, in the UK. Uh, and so it is darkest before the dawn. Uh, we think the pivot is close, uh, if in nothing, in nothing else but rhetoric in the short term. And we certainly hope that the Fed gets away from this need for unanimity and a united front when really we have all of these Fed, Fed members and presidents uh, for a reason to debate and uh, we feel that that debate is being stifled. The debate should be driven by data, but it cannot be. Uh, if it were, they would not be unanimous in their thinking right now. So let's hope there are some dissenters and uh, let's hope there's uh, some rhetoric change. There's, there are all kinds of reasons out there, data-driven reasons. And so we hope the Fed uh, is paying more attention to all of the data in, instead of just a selected few uh, pieces of lagging indicators. So with that, I wish you a happy weekend or whatever day you're viewing this, and we'll see you next month. ARC believes that the information presented is accurate and was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information, and such information may be subject to change without notice from ARC. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in this podcast may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions, and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements.